The Enviro Show. Well, the 25th International Union of Architects World Congress is going to be taking place next month between the 3rd and the 7th of August. That's in Durban for the first time, I believe, in Southern Africa. And the theme of the Congress this time is architecture otherwhere, whatever that means exactly. And it's certainly acknowledging that the built environment is a major force that needs to be harnessed towards a better life for us all. One of the many architects taking place is a gentleman by the name of Ken Stuckey. He's with ERA, which stands for Environmental and Response Architecture. We got him on the line to tell us all about it. Hi, Ken. Hi. Hi, how are you? And good Excellent. day to your listeners. Good. Thank you very much. ERA, do you want to just explain that to us before we get stuck into anything else? Environmental and response architecture? Meaning okay. Well, uh, it's actually environment response oh, architecture. Okay. And what that really means is that um, when, we, when we practice architecture, we try to understand the existing environment which exists on a site and um, the natural climate that is, that is on that site, the, the natural microclimate, which is created by the winds, the trees, the slopes, the orientation, and the sun, of course. And we try and understand those energies and flows of heat and water and wind, etc., etc. And we use those natural forces as strategies to design our buildings in order to create comfortable internal spaces. And it kind of sounds like the sort of things that the, the Egyptians probably did. You know, thousands of years ago, it makes so much sense, but somehow we might have lost those, uh, those parameters. Exactly. Before the invention of air conditioning, uh, which incidentally was invented to stop printing presses from clogging up in humid climates, in, air conditioning was actually originally invented to dry air out, not to cool it down. But never mind. Following the invention of air conditioning, um, architects have, have ceased to uh, design their buildings according to the sun and the wind, which was always how it was always done before, when only natural ventilation was only your, your only form of, of ventilating a building. That's how all buildings were built. You. Now, that's a bit scary. Can we just spend a moment on air conditioning then? So designed to dry things out, is that still what it does? It does, so yeah. Are, are we all Most dehydrating? people will notice when they spend yeah. too long in an air-conditioned building, their skin gets dry, their eyes get dry, people with contact lenses suffer, and never mind the amount of energy that those machines use mm -hmm. in keeping buildings cool, which is completely unnecessary. If you design a building properly, um, we can actually do without air conditioning in a, in a large number of buildings. Okay, run us past a few ideas. Well, like I say, it's really about understanding the energies that are flowing on the site and understanding the climate within which the site sits. Um, in South Africa, we generally have a very benign climate. You know, our, our climate is often a little bit higher or hotter than, than comfortable and, a little, and, and often at other times a little bit colder than comfortable. So it oscillates around comfort, which is then very, very easy to, to make buildings that create a comfortable environment, which is somewhere between those two extremes. If you're working in Sweden or somewhere where it's almost always colder than, than comfortable, um, then obviously your problems are much greater. So really there's no excuse in South Africa for us designing buildings that don't use the natural climate to create comfort. Okay, so aircon, tick, we could get rid of that. <laughs> what, what other sort of major sources of energy are used that we could do without? Well, the, the big one which drives all life on this planet is the sun. And uh, in actual fact, in South Africa, we have incredible uh, sunshine, as we all know. In, in the high felt up in Joburg, where I am, we're incredibly fortunate because our very cold winters are counterbalanced by very dry, clear, blue skies all day long. So although it's very cold in the morning, 
by afternoon in winter days, it's always um, nice and warm and pleasant. I mean, I'm sitting outside now in the sun today, and I'm perfectly comfortable. Um, so really, the sun is probably the greatest energy source that we have to drive both a heating strategy, obviously, um, but also if you're, if you, you know, clever about it, you can actually use it to drive a cooling strategy as well. I, I suppose, you know, just thinking of the built environment, which is a very guilty party in terms of the materials, you know, we all know about concrete, it, it's just not doing the planet any favour, also uses lots of water. In terms of materials, what are your favoured choices then as an urban architect? What, what are your favoured materials? Okay, look, it's always one of the biggest problems an architect has to face, and that is the choice of the materials, but not only materials, the treatments and the processes that go into those materials. Um, the view I take is that we used to design buildings for a lifespan of uh, 20 years. Um, the average city block in Johannesburg has been redeveloped seven times in 100 years, so they've actually survived you know, about 12 years. Um, what I do is I consider buildings that need, we need to design buildings nowadays for 50 to 100 years. And when you think of a building lasting 50 to 100 years, the idea of using concrete and high embodied energy materials in that building in order to make it perform extremely well with very little energy during its lifetime, you can actually offset the embodied energy in those materials very, very quickly. So I don't really have a problem with using high energy materials in quality buildings that perform extremely well, use very little energy in their lifetime and are built to last for maybe 50 to 100 years. Yeah, because I, I suppose things do change. I'm just thinking in some parts of Europe, some cathedrals took 40 years to build, never mind, you know, and they've, been, and they've lasted for centuries. Exactly, and in fact they took often over 100 years yeah, to build. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose we just need to, you know, we could be doing a lot of architects out of business if we um, if we make things that are of too long a duration, but it, we do definitely need to rethink, certainly in terms of cities. And if we just take a moment, because I think one of the things that you're going to be talking about at the Congress uh, Architecture Otherwhere is, is in fact rethinking Johannesburg ecologically. Where are you going to start? Well, it's, it's the most fascinating Congress. Um, like you've mentioned, it's called uh, the theme of the Congress is Architecture Otherwhere. What does that mean? It, they're talking about other ways of thinking about architecture, practicing architecture, teaching architecture, um, bringing other disciplines into architecture. Um, you know, it's all the, it's, in other words, how can we think outside of what was traditionally the box that architecture sat in? And how can we look at it in terms of interfacing with other disciplines and bringing other disciplines into architecture to resolve some of the very, very complex socioeconomic and, and environmental problems that the, we're faced with today? So it's a very, very topical and relevant theme, I feel. And so coming back to Johannesburg, you're Yes. Researching, sort of um, rethinking I've it. Off rather a large chunk. I've I've kind of um, got this idea that um, one can almost imagine a city almost like an, an ecosystem. Uh, a natural ecosystem has a, a nutrient cycle. It has a cycle of temperatures and uh, water, nitrates, etc., etc., which keep that ecosystem alive. And you find that every Every organism's waste is another organism's sustenance. Like and there is actually no waste in a system like that. Okay. And each, um, for example, you know, each organism will, will flourish uh, wherever the, in the factors, uh, the environmental factors are benign for that organism. So uh, you'll find that certain species grow or live in certain places which are which are different to other places, and, and there's a, a niche for each and every species in an ecosystem. And I'm trying to look at a city 
in the way that there are different land uses, different occupancies, different functions, like light industrial, like educational, like residential, like heavy industrial. And I'm trying to imagine those almost as different species within an ecosystem and trying to imagine where they would all want to be according to an ecosystemic kind of thinking about all of the water, the sun, and the wind that is blowing pollutants away, for example, or or uh, water which is carrying nutrients through a cycle. So I'm trying to reimagine Johannesburg where the gold reef is almost like a tree that fell over in the forest and becomes a resource that all other organisms now tap into because the only reason Johannesburg exists is because of the gold reef. So that's the main reason that Joburg is there. So now if that is there as the beginning reason for Joburg, how could Johannesburg have actually evolved organically according to the natural needs of these various different species, I call them, which are actually different land uses and different types of occupancies? Mm, I'm a bit worried about that word could. How could it? I mean, (laughs) it sounds a bit conditional and it's all way too late. Uh, Yes, it is, but it's a completely academic study and the intention of it is to guide thinking in the future. In other words, it is a retrospective look at what could have happened, but what would be interesting about it is to compare that to what actually did happen, and then to see what can be extrapolated out of, out of that into what could happen in the future. And yes, and I'm thinking of there are certain parts of uh, Johannesburg which are in serious state of decay. Uh, you know, so whatever ideas one comes up with from what's happened in the past, one's got to look at repair. Uh, what you know, how would you begin to sort of repair that? Which because Johannesburg went up in a big hurry, didn't it? As yeah. you say, on account of the gold rush, how would one repair the damage and at the same time breathe the new sort of life in it into it that you were describing? Well, these are, these are the big questions which are facing urban designers and architects these days. Um, you know, I, I think what we have to realize is that uh, the biggest problem we face globally is not new buildings, but it's more existing buildings. Mm. And how can we make existing buildings more successful, uh, less wasteful of energy and water, and less creating um, more... more um, more a cyclical relationship with their environment rather than a linear one where you take in products and you distribute waste. So how can, how can we evolve the way our buildings work to be a more efficient kind of a system? And that's all part of what uh, I'm hoping to look at in my research. Well, and hopefully it'll all be part of what will be discussed at the uh, at the World Congress, where there'll be ideas from all over the world. In your opinion, it might be difficult to give a yes-no here or, or come out on either side, but in your opinion, is it better to pull down a building and st- that's not very successful and start again, or work with what there is and try and fix it? No, in terms of, in terms of the planet's resources, wherever possible, one should try and reuse existing buildings. There's no doubt about that. However... Um, I've had instances where a building was simply not well built enough um, in order to make it efficient or uh, workable in in a new sense, Um, or it simply is in the wrong position, or it it simply is not strong enough to take the additional stories that a client may require. So there are times when it becomes unavoidable to tear a building down, and all I can say is that when that does become necessary, one needs to be very conscious about how that is done. Mm. Um, For example, we did a project recently um, where that was exactly the case, but what we were able to do is carefully, carefully strip every single thing out of that building, donate it to charity, all the fittings, light fittings, plugs, floors, roof timbers, roof coverings, windows, doors, 
everything was removed and donated to charity. And when there was only the bricks and mortar left, that was all crushed up on site and used in the in the creation of the new structure. Yeah. So no waste was carried off-site, which is a big issue. So there yeah. are ways of mitigating the consequences of having to tear a building down. I suppose it's, it's the anthill pr yeah. sort of principle, really, isn't it? <laughs> Just going back to the Congress, the World Congress, so all these architects from all over the world coming together, any countries in your research and in your sort of uh, looking around to see who's doing what, any countries have, who've got it or any cities that have got it really right? Oh, my heavens, that's a huge question. There's, there's, there are a lot of people doing some incredibly fantastic things around the world. Um, look, I think a country which suits us in terms of climate and um, certainly climate and, and not so much socioeconomic issues, but uh, we've actually learned a lot. We have a Green Building Council here in South Africa, mm -hmm. and we've learned a lot from the Australian Green Building Council. So uh, that's one example of a country which has taken these things on, on board. Um, but the whole of Europe and America has been dealing with um, sort of environmentally responsive uh, architecture for, for many, many years now. So there are many architects all over the world who are practicing uh, what I consider to be good architecture um, for, for many, many years. It's just in South Africa it's taken longer for that sort of thinking to bite. Mm. Well, hopefully the Congress will, will, will sort of instill some of those ideas into people's heads. Um, Ken, if anybody wants to know a little bit more about your organ, about your company, which is ERA Environment Response Architecture, what would the website be? It's www.era-architects, yeah. um, yeah. okay. which is plural, .co.za. Yeah. Cool. So that's www.era-architects. .co.za and I think if anybody would like to know more about the Congress itself it's happening between the 3rd and the 7th of August there in Durban it's uh, UIA uh, 2014Durban.org is that right? That's right. Perfect lovely thank you very much. Thank you very much Take care. That's Ken Stuckey and once again he's with ERA Architects but if you would like to find out more about the, uh, the actual World Congress of Architects it's UIA 2014Durban.org Right, well, moving next from Durban to Cape Town, also with sustainability in mind, is an organisation who call themselves Thinking. And one of their projects is to light up a part of otherwise rather dark Cape Town. Well, I spoke to co-founder of Thinking earlier, he's Lyle Sprong, to find out why and, and how it started. It's two industrial designers that slowly started making more and more things with their hands rather than outsourcing production. And slowly but surely, because of like interactive objects that were being created, there was like a strong sort of electronics side that came into the project, and that became our, our focus. So these kind of interactive installations, sometimes socially orientated, sometimes uh, like branding orientated, like activations or experiential advertising. But um, yeah, essentially around making things and then in making things in combination with electronics. Okay, well, how does one study for that sort of thing? So did you study industrial design? What what um, informs your thought process? Um, yeah, well, I suppose like with industrial design, you learn to outsource. So you, 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 you ultimately design something that uses mul multiple processes to like achieve some results. In a way, we just find ourselves using like like things like Arduino, etc., a lot in in, in achieving that result. And because it's because it's from an open source platform, it's actually something that was relatively easy to pick up 
or knowledge was like readily available um, or easy to use. Mm-hmm. So that part of it we didn't study, but the, the idea of being able to reference or use different processes, I suppose, is a, is a skill we picked up just through the nature of industrial design. Okay, give us a couple of concrete examples, well, maybe not concrete, but some examples <laughs> so that we can uh, we can uh, get a handle on what you're okay. describing. Our most recent project that most people know about is this uh, another light up project um, with Faith 47 and Design and Arbitrust, which is a it's like a, it's an, a wall mural that has a lighting feedback system that's linked to like an online donation platform. So the idea being that when we raise enough money, we can feedback to the city or people driving past that we've raised enough money to build another light in another space and then we shine the lights on the wall and that's right now that's that's been refined to actually just when people donate we put the put the lights on for them for a night just explain to me lyle how that works because yeah. i drive past it every day and i think how does it actually work you know i, yeah. I fondly imagine that you know people dropping <sighs> pennies in a box and ding the lights yeah. come up there and then they come off in monwa bc park and that but i'm yeah. sure it doesn't quite work like that i, I don't want to get too much into like the, the heavy technicalities but there's an amazing little computer that's like revolutionized i suppose open source electronics called a raspberry pi and we've got one of those in a box on the wall that's constantly searching twitter we told it to look for the phrase another light up so it's looking all the time over the whole of twitter for this phrase if it finds that phrase it goes on for like 10 to 15 seconds that's that's the one side to it and then we've got like a unique little code that any time that we tweet that on twitter because the system is looking for um, that unique number sequence, it will switch on. So that's how we switch the lights on when we've raised enough money or when we need to switch it on for the whole night. Is it a campaign, uh, though, that people actively tweet another light up because they know about it? That side of it is was really just like an incentive for people to help promote the idea or like get it out onto Twitter. So people, the people who are standing in front of it can tweet and provide it. The internet's a little bit shaky up there, so if the system, the internet drops for a second, you might not get, you might not switch on. But for the most part, it'll pick up your tweets and um, go on. Mm-hmm. So that that was like one part of it. The other part of it was just like, not, it wasn't really so important that we used Twitter. It was just the easiest thing for us to use, and it, it was much more about like feedback, how we could switch the lights on for night, but, but not have to go and flick a switch. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the, the other end of it, the recipients, if you like, at Monwa BC Park, are they are they aware of this? So, do, uh, what what happens when people are not donating? In start like starting the project, we spoke to VPUU, the Violence Prevention Through Urban Upgrading. That you know, I'm sh- that you know about it, that initiative, the amazing public space program internationally, like very well recognised, mm-hmm. kind of creating architecture or different like useful spaces like libraries or office spaces along like a key sort of walkway in Kailicha. Um, so creating definite, say, like main arteries of commute that are safe. Mm. And we went to them and, and said to them, you know, what an appropriate space to light up. So they, they suggested an amount that it would cost to in, install streetlights, to install streetlights. And then um, the idea is that once the whole program is finished, the money raised will be used to install streetlights. So essentially, it, 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 the, the actual installation of light in Mamubisi will only happen once the, the project is finished. Okay, okay, I'm with you. I suppose, you know, we can go in the, into the niceties of that, but what's really important here is the point, is the, it seems like you sort of industrial design with heart. So yeah. it's not just about designing stuff, it's about designing stuff that's going to make a difference. 
like for us, it's always like a prototype. Like it's the first time we've done this. There definitely are areas we could have improved, improved on. Um, so but it is before we started this project, it was for us like the, the the best idea that we could come up with. Having like a, a project that's kind of beautiful for the city, like an interesting art piece, but then at the same time has. Um, something to do with what is actually yeah. outside of the city or the greater Cape Town. Yeah. Uh, just going back to the issue of things that we need, I think that you've perhaps also done something with water, um, some yeah. sort of water installation, just because, I mean, we are an environmental program. These things are very... People's light sources and water sources are important. Yes. What? Tell us about that. WWF with um, Ogilvy had this initiative to communicate, like, the real journey of water. So you, know, you, you turn the tap and you get this glass of water, but the, that is such a, that's like a tip of the iceberg in terms of the real story. We built a machine, which is part of a great, like a greater initiative, where a whole bunch of people walked from catchment areas all the way down to Kirstenbosch, you know, the river streams, past the dams, etc., to show how far the, the journey of water, or how, how great the journey of water really is. And then we, ours was like a kind of, halfway between an infographic and a, like a mechanical object that you turn the tap, the ra- we had like these kind of cut-out rain clouds and the water flowed through the, through the clouds and then through into like graphic representations of um, the, um, the process of refining water. And then eventually it came out of the tap and you get like a, a glass of tap water. Like it was a 2.4 metre high structure. Mm. Is it then your purpose, are you forever thinking? Is it something that you will keep on doing? Or is this a, I don't know if you're a world design capital project, will it just be for this short period of time? Or do you plan constantly to be innovative about how we design things? What attracted myself to design is it felt like it was like an all-encompassing way of looking at like multiple stakeholders or multiple issues, and then deciding one result that could be good or, ben- or, or beneficial. And so, like, these projects are, in the same way, it's like lots of different parties involved and um, are, are, like, the best way that we think we can do something that has, like, um, meaning. And that, that, like, that intent is, I suppose, more important than thinking. So it, if, if eventually it was a soup kitchen that was very effective or... We've been looking a little bit at um, community um, colleges, that whole sort of thing that happens in the States, like a vocational, um, vocational learning space. Then perhaps maybe we would spend time working on something like that rather. That was Lyle Sprong of Thinking. Well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that Light Up uh, project that they've got going, check the site. It's anotherlightup.com and you too can take part. Another Light Up. First, it was the first democratic elections in 1994. The President of the Republic of South Africa, Mr. Nelson Kholishasa Mandela. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The 2010 FIFA World Cup. We are proud. We are proud of Africa. The 2010 FIFA World Cup will be organized in South Africa. Then, a South African winning an Oscar. And the Oscar goes to... Charlize Theron. I'm going to thank everybody in South Africa, my home country. And I'm bringing this home. Our democracy did not come cheap. SFM celebrates 20 years of inspiration. Let us all reflect on how our freedom was achieved. SFM. South Africa's news and information leader.
The Enviro Show. Up here on the Enviro Show, time for our forage feature, which today is less about how food grows rather than how perhaps you can grow your own, with a system called Growing Stacks. And to tell us a little bit more earlier, I spoke to owner gardener John Stewart. Growing Stack is um, a stack of pots, um, but they're designed in such a way that um, they obviously stack vertically, but they overflow into each other and they are. Like you can look, think of a, um, a clover leaf, a three-leaf clover leaf, and they stack concentrically, so they they alternate, and there's a gap between each one as they they go up. So in a standard set of um, three pots, uh, or let's let's say four pots, you have three compartments or pockets on each level. So you'd have three times four, it's twelve pockets, and then an extra pocket on the top in the middle. Um, the middle part in the lower lower levels um, is dead in the sense of you can't actually grow anything on them because they're obviously covered by the meat of the, the pot above it. Um, but that area is very important for the roots to access moisture and nutrients, okay. all the rest of it. But they all grow out from their pockets. Um, and effectively, these things, the, the big ones that, that are big movers for us, um, are about 600... Um, wide, 600, you take a 600 circle, um, so they're, they're large. Mm. And you can grow literally anything in these things. Mm. Um, you could even grow potatoes, but I'd suggest oh. growing in potatoes, you'd probably eat the whole stack in one meal and then start, start working. <laughs> so kind, of, kind of defeat the object, yes. wouldn't it? So, so but all your, all your sort of cut and grow things and veg, uh, veggies and herbs and things, they grow beautifully. So basically what it's doing is a sort of, um, you know, disallowing the argument that I can't grow vegetables because I haven't got any space because you can grow them at 600 centimetres, 60 centimetres pretty much. So you could put this on your balcony. You could you could put it on your front doorstep. You can put it on much. your balcony. You can put it anywhere outside your kitchen door. The beauty of it is, but it's not a huge, big, heavy thing. Each layer is, although it stacks and it fits into the one below, you can dismantle a thing. You can take it apart and move it about. So each one is not heavy. So it, it's beautiful from that point of view. It's very versatile. You can move it around. You can rotate them as well. So if it's positioned on a balcony and you've got a dark side as you would have, then you grab the top one and they're all locked into each other and you turn them. So each week you turn it a little bit so you equalise the light. They all overflow into each other. So the top, when you water the top one, it first of all fills up a reservoir. It literally overflow. Yeah, when the reservoir, when I say overflow, it's actually they'll, the water will go down through the potting mix and actually will fill up a little reservoir on the bottom to start with. When that's full, that overflows down to the next one. But that holds back one and a quarter litres, which your plants can access in between watering sessions. So just in terms of actually growing vegetables, I suppose you can grow flowers in them if you want to. But you can grow from it. our purposes, yep. what we're yep. looking at is growing your own food here. What, what grow best? Because they're presumably quite deep, but not enormously deep. What would you grow? What would you be growing if you wanted to, to have a complete vegetable garden? OK, so the sort of things which uh, these pots really lend themselves to is all the cut and grow type things spinach, all your salads, um, all your herbs. I've grown aubergines uh, very successfully. I've got, I think off one of my plants, I've got uh, 10 aubergine fruits in a season. Uh, peppers, chilies, very, very uh, easy to grow chilies. Um, all your herbs, of course. Um, anything that you can cut and it keeps growing, cut it and it keeps growing. 
Um, and if you think of an aubergine plant, I mean, that has a big root mass and that's very successful in there. So, yeah, you can pretty well do anything. Yeah. I, don't, I don't promote um, the growing of root crops for that same reason that, you know, you can grow a whole lot of root crops and one meal you eat the whole lot, you Yeah, know? yeah. And then you've got to start working. So things like carrots or, or potatoes, probably, yeah, probably not, not really so much. I like the, like yeah. the cut and grow, it makes yes. it sound so easy. Yeah. Uh, the thing about growing anything in pots, whether they're stacking pots or any sort of pots, is that your soil is going to only going to be good for so long because it's not getting its own sort of re any sort of regeneration. What sort of soil do you use and how often do you change it? Yeah, that that is the most relevant point because um, I take um, stacks to these shows and I've been growing them and they look beautiful. And people say, "How do you get your plants to 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 look so fantastic?" And I tell them straight out, the it's, "It's nothing to do with the pots. It's to do the secret lies in the soil. Your your plants are only a reflection of what you've got in your soil. So quite rightly, that soil will get depleted fairly quickly, especially where you're cutting stuff out. If you imagine what you're you're putting water in. Let's just say you're being naive and just putting water in and then you're cutting and taking it out and out. Where's that stuff coming from? It's mm. not coming from the water. It's coming out of the soil and therefore you need to replace that. So I find myself not just selling pots. I find myself marketing and selling a whole new concept of how to grow things in pots, how to feed them, how to water them and all these things. And this little organization of mine is growing wider and wider and wider. We have newsletters and we have a lot of information on our website um, to so, teach people basically what, what, how to So tell us all the secrets, because when you talk about replacing it, you, I mean, to keep on replacing soil would be yes. expensive and a great big yes. hassle, I can only think. So well, would you, can, do you actually have to replace it or do you let it lie fallow or do you feed the soil? What do you do? Um, I feed it. I never throw it away. To me, it's, a, it's an ongoing work in, in process. Um, so if I, if I look at, if I'm changing a crop, I'm pulling something out and I'm, I look at the soil. And if it's got too sandy or dusty, I, kn I know I need to add something which is going to add some more body, some more water-retaining body to it, which may be coconut coir or water-retaining crystals, which we use uh, quite, quite extensively. Um, I have a look at it. And I always add some more food, always. When I say food, some slow-release fertilizer, organic fertilizer or something like that, something which is not going to get washed out. With, with watering, something which releases itself slowly. And there are various um, products on the market you do So that. presumably, I mean, this, this little urban farm, this little urban vegetable patch, if you like, you, you're not going to have the beauty. If you're growing it on your on your front step or on your stoop, you're not going to have uh, the beauty of having a, a compost heap. Or are you, unless you have a sort of... I mean, can you make your own feed? Yeah, the most common, the common um, source of thing you find in the urban areas are these worm farms, the, the black fully um, decomposed stuff that the worms produce is fantastic. It's like gold actually mixed into your potting soil. But what I, what I normally say to customers is you use your, go and get your potting soil from the nursery, but bear in mind that on its own, it's going to kill your plants because this stuff has got nothing in it to feed your plants and nothing in there to hold moisture. We all know that when you water, water a lot of your plants at home, the water goes straight through it. And that's because there's nothing in there to hold moisture. Now, when you buy potting soil anywhere overseas, it's got peat moss in it, which holds moisture. So we sell a little pack, which you add to a certain amount of potting soil that buy at the nursery, which has largely got coir in it, coconut coir, which does the job of peat moss. And it has water retaining crystals and slow release fertilizer. And that is like a starter. That gets you going. And that, there's probably enough nutrients and goodies in there to 
last year for the best part of a season with the, the water retaining pots and for five or six months in terms of nutrients. But then we also give you information, we give you a little booklet, which teaches you how to go and now buy your own correct fertilizer yeah. and how to apply so it. It really is, it's like mini farming, really, isn't yes, it? Yes, absolutely. So just thinking, you mentioned aubergine there, you mentioned chilies, all sorts of things, presumably not tomatoes. You can grow tomatoes, okay. absolutely, because on you'd grow tomatoes on a top one, you can actually put a tall stake and grow them very successfully. Tomatoes have their own um, problems of their own. They're very heavy feeders and, you know, treat them accordingly. And the other beauty of these stacks is that you can actually microclimate each layer. So if you want to have fruit bearing or flower bearing or whatever um, plants on one level, you can feed them the appropriate fertilizers to promote that. Or another level, you might be wanting to grow much more lush green things, in which case you feed it much more nitrogen based fertilizer and you create feed it for that so yeah, it's a little bit of overflow but you can create these microclimates and it works fantastically so similarly with tomatoes you feed that particular layer with with pacifics for so tomatoes. if you're not doing very well with your chilies for argument's sake you can hoof that lot out and but still leave everything else in its absolutely place and just change the one lot yeah if you you can take take the pot the the stack down and tackle whichever one you want to tackle and leave all the others in place in fact, I, I unstack, I stick them in my vehicle and I travel all over the country with them to shows so they can go on holiday with you as well. <laughs> Not half bad. So just, just lastly then thinking, what would be... Um, so I suppose if you're growing, growing vegetables in some, you could have flowers in another just to sort of jolly, jolly up the visuals. Or you can mix it up, yeah. Or you can mix it up. Mm. What would be your ideal combo? And we're coming into spring. What would be the ideal combination of vegetables to be planting as a, as a starting pack? Yeah, coming into summer, um, I would. I always put on the top. I always like to have some chilies growing there. I'll, the aubergines. You're going to have to begin planting those in the next couple of months. Um, and I would put some uh, peppers on the top. And often on top, I would have um, uh, a rosemary plant because that tends to get bushy and strong. And I usually grow that on top. Lower down, then I'd go into the rockets. I have rocket in a pocket. I'll have. Um, that sounds good, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, then I'll have some spinach. Um, I'll have some lettuce. Um, of course, uh, basil. Uh, all these, all these lovely herbs, which feed them right, and they grow lush. And it's it's extraordinary how much food you can get off all these plants, and of course your parsley and all the rest. Have you sold any to restaurants? It seems like an ideal way for a restaurant to maybe they wouldn't be able to supply themselves with enough, but certainly if it was full of herbs, they yeah. would probably keep them going. A couple of restaurants have, have come forward and made noises, but um, in the end, I, I suspect they need more than one, and the maintenance is more than it's easier for them probably to just go and buy bulk from from because they're not buying the little 10 rand sachet that you and mm. i buy which becomes very expensive you actually did a little um, estimate there you probably find that you're spending a thousand rand on on uh, little sachets but a restaurant would think they buy bulk and it would be better for them to go and buy bulk um but a restaurant uh, nicely positioned and right nicely marketed if if their bent was that way could could market them very successfully the pots themselves but you know it's horses for courses these things in, in talking of horses for courses you mentioned one that's about 600 uh, millimeters 60 centimeters do they come in different sizes yeah that's our biggest one that's our those are 20 liters per level so if you think of the the big pack of potting soil the bar from the nursery is normally 30 liters 30 dm cubed um we have a then we have a 10 10 liter one and we have a five liter one so we have a, a spread those are the three main ones we've got a wall mounted um set as well so yeah we've got a fairly good range and different colors and yeah mail order 
Mail order also, yes. If you go to our website, you'll see all of them there. We can post them to you as well. And the website is? It's www.growingstacks.co.za. John Stewart there with info on growing stacks. And once again, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about these interleaving pots, www.growingstacks.co.za. Well, in a minute here on the show, we're going to be hearing about how you can do a quick safari on your cell phone with the Phone Ranger app. But first, something to make you feel really good when you take your next shower, a water-saving showerhead. That's with John Anderton of Oxygenics. Who showerheads do what exactly? Essentially, uh, Oxygenics is actually an American brand um, of water-saving, water and energy-saving shower, uh, showerhead. And uh, we brought them into South Africa because we felt that they do what they uh, say they do on the, on the can very well, as it were, uh, which is uh, saving water and energy in a way uh, with a shower that doesn't make you feel as if you're uh, standing and uh, looking at the sky and wondering where on earth the water, water is. Uh, because I think that was, uh, has traditionally sort of been the, the view of people that uh, low-flow showerheads, so-called, were exactly that, and they were very ineffective. So Oxygenics um, has been around in the U.S. for about 20 years, and uh, they were designed from the ground up to be very effective in terms of giving somebody an excellent shower, but at, um, at a low, uh, lower than normal flow rate. Just, ex- um, just explain yeah. the low flow thing. You know, what does it mean exactly? Does it mean it's trickling out? Does it mean it, how does it actually? Yeah, work? well, that's that's I think been the the traditional sort of view of of a water yeah, saving shower. Exactly. It was a shower head that was a standard shower head fitted with a, what's called a restrictor, which means that the uh, amount of water flowing through is reduced. But unfortunately, it also means that because the shower head isn't designed, uh, as I say, from the from the ground up. Uh, to be uh, delivering a proper forceful, uh, force, forceful flow, if you like, at that low flow rate, it, it, it's very ineffective um, as, a, as, a, as a shower head. But I think the, the most important thing is, um, is, the, is obviously the benefits um, of any properly designed water-efficient shower head, is that, and, and, and those are the water and energy savings, obviously saving energy because of saving on hot water. So the oxygenics, I can't help feeling there's something in the name there. Is, it, is oxygen coming through? Is that what it is? That's well, what the, uh, the, the oxygenic showerheads specifically, and, and bear in mind there are quite a number of, of good uh, water-efficient showerheads on, on the market. Oxygenics is just one that we decided was uh, you know, particularly good because it had been in the U.S. Uh, and used there for so long. Um, basically, that's the, uh, based on the idea that uh, the, the, there's what's called a Venturi effect. It means that um, inside the showerhead there's a, a little um, uh, triple fin, if you like, which spins the water around, which, and the water then passes over a couple of, of uh, holes in the outlet of the shower. And what that does, it draws in air, uh, oxygen, obviously oxygenated air or oxygen, into the, uh, the water stream. So what that does, it bulks up. The, the water uh, flow, if you like. Um, so, so basically, the effect of that is to make it feel like there's more water coming out than there actually is. Um, there is some research to suggest that's also good for your skin, but uh, mm. that's not something that we dwell on uh, too much. Yeah, I, I have to say the combination of the oxygen and the water, it, we, I began to feel the, the old cells plumping up a little Indeed. bit there. <laughs> um, so that's how it works. So or roughly that's how it works. Does it... How much water does it save? Can you give an... I don't know how much water is actually used during an average shower, but how much water is it saving per shower? Yes, sure. We've done a a lot of research on this um, a little while ago, actually, and and that research in the end was used by ESCOM to underpin some of its um, uh, showerhead rollout programs, which were proposed programs, some of which uh, never happened. But 
Um, if you take a standard shower head, and I, one in particular, uh, which shall remain um, uh, unmentioned, um, <clears throat> it's used in, used in probably a million households across South Africa or, or has been in the past. Uh, the flow rate of that at three bar, which is a standard household pressure, would have uh, is about 25 litres a minute. Um, so you can imagine a four-minute shower, and you've used 100 litres of water, of which um, half of that at least is out of your out of your uh, hot water cylinder. Now, in oxygenics, in fact, the U.S. regulations don't allow showerheads to have a flow rate of over uh, nine and a half litres a minute. So you can imagine, I mean, that's almost a third of um, of the other shower head, the water wasting shower head. Is, so, is that regulation in the States? Correct, it's in, since 1992. Oh. And very interestingly, in Cape Town, although um, most people don't know it, a, uh, a bylaw came out in September 2006 to say that no shower head can actually uh, be used that has a flow rate over 10 litres a minute. Of course, that's not, as I say, people remain completely in the dark by that particular bylaw, but there you go. Gosh, well, I suppose there are an awful lot of people who've got showers that have been in their houses or moving into houses that are older that they wouldn't wouldn't have any idea. No, no. But, uh, you know, bylaws aside and so on, I, I think the most important thing to to remind people is that um, there are very complicated and difficult ways to uh, to save uh, energy and save carbon emissions and so on, like going and buying a 400,000 rand Toyota Prius, or you can go and buy a 200 uh, rand shower head and um, essentially save in this in 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 a year almost the same amount of carbon emissions as uh, as changing to that Toyota Prius, and the the reason for that is that um, one is saving about uh, two two megawatt hours of, of power a year. It's, it seems like a, a massive amount of power, but that translates into about two, uh, two or three tons of carbon emissions a year. And in terms of uh, the actual saving on, on household costs, um, the saving is in the region of, and this is for, say, four people showering each once a day for six minutes, in the region of uh, 5,000 rand a year. It's, it's almost unbelievable. But yeah. if anyone wants the figures, they can email me and I'll send them the data. Uh, okay, I'll get your details just in a minute, but just go back my uh, my slow brain here. Mm. So 25 litres a minute on the no-name uh, shower head, and yours is how, how many litres It's, a it's um, around about, uh, well, say under 10 litres a minute, okay. 9 to 10 litres a minute, yeah. Wow, that's really quite something. Um, just just before you do give us the details, I think you have a particularly vested interest or at least a, a particular interest in saving water and energy because you spent some time on a boat. Well, that's actually where um, all of my, my interest in sus- sustainability really came from. We, uh, Claire and I lived on a boat for 10 years, uh, the last couple with uh, my, our two daughters, Meg and Abby. But, um, yeah, so we learned a tremendous amount about how to live, first of all, in a very small space, uh, which actually informed another one of my, uh, my interests, which is um, building. But um, we learned about the fact that if you have to catch your, or harness your own resources like rainwater, um, produce your own power through solar panels and so on, you don't want to waste uh, what, you've, uh, what you've saved or, or, or gained uh, through through those um, through those sources, mm-hmm. so yeah, we learned about uh, washing with um, you know a shower head that that wasn't blasting a lot of water, and we we uh, also you know used lights obviously that were were very uh, energy efficient, and uh, yeah, as I say, it was an experience that um, has affected us in a very positive way in that in that respect. Well, so you've gone into business that you probably could write a very good book on ways to economise costs. Yeah. I thank you very much. So if anybody would like the figures or would like to know a little bit more, what's your email? 
it's uh, www. Uh, sorry, it's uh, info info yeah. at oxygenics. That's oxygen o x y g e n i c s dot co dot za. Fab, and I'm assuming that the website would be oxygenics.co.za as well. That's correct, yeah. Lovely. Well, keep on saving the water. Lovely. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. Bye now. Well, it's Johnny Anderton, and he's been telling us all about how you can save a heck of a lot of water, so why wouldn't you do it? Check it out, the website, oxygenics.co.za, or pop in an email. It's info at oxygenics.co.za. And finally, our green goodie for this evening. It's a nifty little app to bring the wild to the palm of your hand. It's Straight Nature's Phone Ranger. Rob McLean on the line to explain exactly how it works. As with any phone app, really, you download the, the app from your app store and it's available for Apple or Android and then it's on your phone. And then when you're on your game drive, rather than you know, normally on a self-drive um, game drive, perhaps the dad or someone in the car has a, a field guide and they're you know, looking into sighting and maybe they're picking out a couple of facts from that field guide and that field guide is quite factual, quite technical. You know, maybe it's talking about the sizes and weights and Latin names of the animals in front of you. We want to bring that to life. So um, you can actually use the app um, to play audio through your um, on the phone, and that can actually be played through the car stereo so that everyone in the vehicle can actually be learning together um, rather than just one person reading out snippets. Um, and it's also it's, it's trying to recreate the atmosphere and the experience of having a ranger and we call them the best ranger in the world in the vehicle with you. Um, so they're kind of telling stories, and the idea is they're deciphering actually what might be going on in front of you. So if you're looking at a sighting of perhaps lions on a kill, they will be explaining the hierarchy of the lions and, and what's likely to be happening in front of you. So it, it's, it's all about trying to recreate the atmosphere and the sense of having a ranger in the car with you rather than just quite a dry experience of, yeah. of reading a book. Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose it's got two applications, really. In you know, you can either take it on safari with you, and you can use it for identification purposes, or sort of, I don't know, upstage the the lilac-breasted rollerbird with your own tweets or, or whatever. Or you can take it, say you're sort of driving through a very dry patch, maybe you're in the middle of the Karoo and there's not a whole lot to see. You could be listening. So it's a two-way thing, is it? Absolutely. Yeah. It's 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 educational and entertaining so certainly we're finding people are using it between sightings as well as at sightings and that's nice because because it can be played on the phone or it can actually be played through the car stereo then everyone can be engaging in it and learning at the same speed and at the same time so it's especially good for families um to to enjoy as you said there are many quiet periods when you're on a game drive yeah so I'm driving along in the Kruger Park and suddenly in the bush I see two great big tusks coming out at me and it's, and it's an elephant and, uh-huh. and it's, maybe it's flapping his ears and I'm thinking, hmm, um, what, 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 what would I find on the app and what's it going to tell me? So there are several different parts of the app. There is the audio piece which I've mentioned which is a, a kind of a commentary on what you're likely to see at the sighting and they'll explain you know, kind of elephant behaviors and, and um, what to look out for when you're watching elephants. But also within the app, there's photos and there's written information, for example, you know, what to be wary of, um, you know, signs of danger with an elephant. Um, so there's a written component and, and an audio component as well. Okay. I mean, do you, do you also get soundtracks of 
of elephants. I mean, say you're you you know we're back in the back in the Karoo and it's all deathly quiet and there's nothing going on. Will he be getting the soundtrack as well of? Of the elephants actually trumpeting? Yes, uh, as part of the audio. Not for all the animals, but most of them, including elephant, there is uh, a recording of the elephant trumpeting or the leopard soaring or the lion roaring, etc. There are all sorts of things that I'm just thinking, you know, when you go out with a ranger, they tell you all sorts of wonderful little snippets that are either true or not, maybe not so true. (laughs) But, you know, fascinating little details, you know what I mean. Have you got those those sort of minutiae as well? Exactly, and that, is, that actually was the inspiration. The inspiration was, you know, the fireside chat at the BOMA after a drive where the, the ranger actually tells you his, his anecdotes and his stories about when he was chased by this or, he, you know, as you said, true or not true. But they're actually, that's the difference between being on a guided drive and, and just doing a self-drive. So we, we really, in terms of the audio, we tried to really bring that in, the stories, the anecdotes, um, as if it was a, a relaxed ranger talking to you. Um, and also, you know, within the design of the app, so the, it's designed as if you were in a, a Land Rover, in a Landy. So you turn the steering wheel to rotate through the, the photos and you press play on the Landy's old stereo to actually play the audio. So we're trying to, to the extent that you can, in ultimately an electronic device, yeah. trying to recreate the sense of as you said, um, storytelling and, and the minutiae that you do get. Yeah, so it's a sort of virtual safari. I suppose you could be driving in the middle of a hillbrow and be having this wonderful safari experience. It's quite exciting. In terms of educational material, uh, you know, we're very concerned that a lot of our animals are threatened, poached, or do I need to tell you, all those sort of things. Is there a sort of, uh, is there that aspect as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's lots of conservation information in the app. So, the, you know, the status, the environmental status of the animals, the distribution and the threats to them. Um, but, you know, lots of books and apps have that. Where I think it is a bit different is we just try and make it a lot more approachable to mm. to um, to families, to people who are perhaps new to the bush or, or don't have that knowledge because it's fun to play with the app in its own right. And also the audio makes it all a lot more accessible. We're actually... We're demoing the app at a book fair recently, and the, the big crowd of kids came around just to actually play with the, you know, the steering wheel within the app of the design yeah, and, and play with the audio. So, especially for people who are new and perhaps those who are a bit a bit younger, it definitely um, has an educational and therefore a kind of a education around conservation angle. I'm just thinking of those little kids and everybody sort of really, um, they're up there for the big five, you know, the things that roar and the, the great big things. Yeah. How many species can you accommodate? I mean, in, in any of our parks, there are lots and there's the little five as well as the big five. Do you go right down to the itty bitty things that are also interesting? They are very interesting, but actually we decided to to keep the list a bit smaller and do it better because otherwise the app becomes very big. Yeah. Um, you know, in terms of how long it takes to download. So we've actually only gone for, I wouldn't say like the, the big hitters, because we've tried to include some of the lesser known animals in there, but we think there are interesting stories about. But it's not it's not a comprehensive, you know, every single yeah. bug you'll see. We, we haven't done that. You know, maybe th- there's future versions and yeah, you know, the additions to, mm. to, to be done. But no, we try to just focus on doing what we did really, really well. Yeah. And somebody who does what they do really, really well is Clive Walker. And I think that you've based it very much on his book, on his Science of the Wild book. Who actually voices this? Who is the, is it his material? And But who's speaking? 
Yeah, so the, the, the content of the app, so the, the things that you see and read, is all based on Clive Walker's Signs of the Wild book, which is, you know, very famous film with Seminole. The audio is voiced over by Patrick Lister, um, who works with Eco Studios. And Patrick was himself a game rager for a long time, worked in Malamala and Classery. Um, and he does voiceovers for a lot of wildlife documentaries. So he was our kind of first choice in terms of actually putting a voice to the content. Rob McLean, well, if you'd like to find out a little bit more about that handy app, it's www.phonerangerapp.com, phonerangerapp.com. Well, that's it for the Enviro Show tonight. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, thanks very much for the team. I'm Nancy Richards, and next up it's time for the news and music with Stephen Kirker. <laughs>